Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher and I'm joined by Andy Hume, who's the boss of Hyde Housing. Andy, good to see you. You're a reformed banker, or not quite reformed, but certainly a former banker. Cut your teeth in Preston, of all places, as a cashier. And you're now running one of Britain's biggest housing associations. You've got over 100,000 customers, over 1,100 staff across your offices and, and different sites. Uh, wonderfully complex and broad business. And you've been in the press a lot over the last couple of weeks for a major court case that you've won on cladding. We'll come on to that shortly, but let's start with some tales of Preston. Let's start with some colour from the cashier's desk. How did you (laughs) kind of end up running, hide your journey along the mortgage lending trail? I guess the common thread, I suppose, is that you've always been fascinated with helping people get into housing. Yeah, absolutely. So look, it's funny. I um, I started out at, uh, at NatWest Preston on Fishergate. Big shout out to Lorraine and the crew. That was 20 something years ago. And it was great, actually. I wanted to buy a house. I wanted somewhere to live. Hmm. And the kind of obvious way of doing that was to go and work for a bank because they do mortgages. So I started out cashiering, kind of cut my teeth, learned how to do it, then moved into selling mortgages then became an area manager and, you know, all those sorts of things. And it was great, you know, so you're on the call face, you're with your customers, you're chatting away, you're engaging, you, you know, you're hearing stories about people's lives. And uh, I loved it, actually. I absolutely loved it. And that obviously opened up quite a few different doors for you over the following years, didn't it? Yeah, massively. You know, through that job, I was moved to London by NatWest. I had roles in marketing and strategy and business development. That meant moving myself and my partner to London. So my husband and I moved down and that was fantastic. It's changed our lives. You know, we've had experiences that we never would have had. And again, all the way through it, trying to support people in ultimately fulfilling their ambition and dream of home ownership. So I'm a mortgage banker. I help people with mortgages is my kind of background and bringing new things to market. So I I worked with the UK government to launch Help to Buy. I worked with the UK government on leasehold reform and the changes that are happening there all of it trying to make it better for people ultimately and to change the life outcomes. Mm. And I think we can all see and recognise, you know, if you have access to poor quality housing and if you don't have deep pockets, we've all seen the impact of that that will have on people's life outcomes. So for me, everything you can do to try and make that better and to try and help is amazing, which is why joining Hyde was a great opportunity, actually. And I was so delighted to be invited to join as CEO back at the start of this year. And what have been some of the pain points that you've focused on addressing quickly? What have been the things that you think need to change in the sector? Look, I think it's really difficult. I mean, we're a sector that's a bit misunderstood. You know, people don't really understand what a housing association is. Is it council housing? Is it not council housing? Where did these houses come from? Who owns them? How does it work? As a customer, as a tenant, what's my relationship with you? And I think that's quite hard for people and that's what people are trying to work out. So Mm. for me, it's about saying within Hyde, we need to become more customer-centric. Yeah, We need to yeah. pivot more towards our customers. That means we need to think about how we organize ourselves, we structure ourselves, the services that we invest in. Because ultimately, we do an all right job, but we can do a better job. And that's what we need to do because we are a not-for-profit. Every single penny that we can generate is money that is invested directly into helping our customers. Mm. Many of our customers are vulnerable or have vulnerable characteristics. And therefore, it's incumbent upon ourselves to run the best, most efficient business we can that is the most focused in customers that it can be Mm. that allow us to kind of create this sort of this virtuous cycle of improving people's 
life chances. Yeah, and, and those are the things that housing associations aren't properly credited ring. This focus on supporting vulnerable groups, supporting elements of society that would have previously been supported by the state. And I always say this, thinking about your sector, that housing associations have essentially been running the country in many respects since 2008, since the GFC turned the tables really in terms of grant funding, how charities are supported, how local councils are financed, and many, many people that fall between the cracks are saved by the services that organisations like Hyde and many other housing associations provide. Just thinking about that customer centricity that you were talking about, the diversity of your board's quite an interesting outlier compared to many more conventional property companies. And you're not really a property firm, but you have houses, so that kind of makes yeah, yeah. you one. But tell us a bit about that. What was the thinking behind some of the people that you brought on? Because they're not necessarily people from the housing association universe. No, that's right. Look, uh, there's probably two things for me. You know, whilst working in banking, I've long thought that housing associations are the unsung heroes and they're not recognised for what they do. And I think there's a great opportunity to kind of really amplify what we're doing to create more value. We'll deliver that with the quality and the diversity of our board. And I mean diversity and all the sorts of typical stuff. Yeah, we've got to think about gender and skills and experiences and disabilities and sexualities and all of those things. But actually, we also need to think about diversity of thought. So our board are a real rich mix of people that have come from the sector and understand how housing works. And that's good because that keeps us safe and it means we know what we're doing. Yeah. But also people that have come from fast-moving consumer goods, from retail, from some huge brands around the UK that can bring in that sort of different perspective, that customer's perspective that can help us with things like digitization and changing the way that we serve our customers, being innovative in the way that we think about things. And you see that in everything that we do. So whether that's the way that we finance ourselves or the way that we structure our services or the way that ultimately we respond when something goes wrong and we've got more to do and we're on a journey, but I think we're doing a really pretty solid job that we can build on. You know, we've got those foundations there that we can build on to take us forwards. How has your own journey been shaped by your background, your outlook on things? You know, you were global MD of real estate and housing for Lloyds, but there wouldn't have been many openly gay men in such senior banking roles, right? No, not many at all. And look, I think the world has changed. If I go back 20 years, I remember being told by one of my, as a sort of junior colleague at this point, being told by one of my managing directors that it would be better for my career if, if I didn't tell people that I was gay which I just thought was was ridiculous and, and ignored. Has it held me back? I don't know if it has or not. I mean, there's definitely been comments and, and difficult conversations. And, you've, and, you've done all right. I mean, you've, you've done got, all right. You've, 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 <laughs> you've, Surviving. You've, you've got a spot on Boscast. That's, uh... <laughs> Absolutely. I, I should be more grateful. And um, But no, you know, there's definitely been comments along the way and inappropriate behaviours and things being said. And there have definitely been moments when, when it's also worked for me. You know, I think as banks, you know, traditionally in a bank, you're a sort of 50-year-old straight white male. And I think actually there was definitely a moment in time when banks were starting to think about diversity, that being a gay guy, but still a guy, was probably easier than perhaps promoting a woman or an ethnically diverse colleague. Mm. And there's something there where there was a moment in time when it might have done me a favour and there were moments in time when it didn't. And I think actually, you know, I left Lloyd's uh, back in December and I uh, sponsored IND for Lloyd's in the commercial bank. And I think there's more to be done. But actually, it's fundamentally a different organisation now than it was even two or three years ago with colleagues who feel more 
able to talk openly, to be themselves. And I look at Hyde, yeah, I'm so pleased, I'm new in. And actually, we've already got a really strong IND network. We have colleagues that are really engaged with that. We have really sort of organic and natural activities that we do to promote diversities, to make sure that colleagues are supported. And it feels a bit like how you might support your friends or family rather mm. than some sort of artificial corporate machine that's being created. And I really like it. I think the guys do a great job. Yeah, I think that's certainly something that puts people's backs up a little bit when it does feel like, right, we need to change our colours on LinkedIn for Pride Month and everybody whacks a rainbow on Twitter. You know what I mean? It's very... Yeah, yeah exactly that. I think that's right. And it's interesting because we, if I look at the activities that we do, you know, we do the odd bit of sponsorship and I've got no idea, but I suspect we change our colours on LinkedIn. You know, I think there is a bit of that. There's always a bit of that, isn't there? But when I actually look at what we do, I think actually we get together as colleagues to support each other. We bring our customers to lots of these sessions. So I was at a session just last week where we were talking about IND and the importance of it and how to better represent. And one of our customers who has a disability came along and spoke to us about her experiences as a disabled Hyde resident. Mm. And actually that was really powerful and it felt natural. And actually by the end of the conversation, she wasn't really a customer. We were like friends in the pub, you know, we were just having a chat. And mm. it's nice. That's what I like about Hyde. It's kind of, we hire real people to do real jobs. Mm. And you're blind in one eye as well, just to... Uh, I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. So To, um, to stack up the diversity <laughs> yeah, points. Yeah, So I've actually got a, a sort of visual and a bit of a hearing thing, which is, it is what it is, you know. And it's broadly okay. But occasionally you have to just kind of make minor adjustments. I've taken a stance in my career that I'll sort of self-adjust and I'll make it work for me rather than expecting other people to do it for me. Mm. Candidly, I think that's probably a mistake. And I should have been more willing to get help from people and to ask for some of those adjustments. But again, it's the environment that you're in at the time. Hmm. And I hope that as we move forward, that in society more generally, people will be able to embrace their quirks and their disabilities and whatever it is Hmm. and be be accepted for it. But as a boss, how do you make your organisation better using that experience? It's a good question. It's tricky, isn't it? Because I'm there's an authenticity point. I always think when people talk about authenticity, it's the most inauthentic thing ever. But there's something about how do you make it... It's easy when you're Northern. (laughs) It's like, how do you make it organic and natural, yeah? Hmm. So I think to stand up and sort of say, look, this is what's happened to me sort of thing, and therefore I understand you. Okay, well, let me ask the question again. So it's not so much necessarily drawn from your own experience, but just as someone that's in charge of managing over a thousand people, what do you think can be done to make it easier for people from diverse backgrounds to exist and flourish in a world without it seeming like some forced corporate guff that's shoveled into someone's annual report on the page that says we're good guys yeah so look firstly you do need a little bit of that because if you want to shift the pendulum you need proactive action sometimes so actually it's important that we have our networks that we have colleagues that are engaged with that that we have development plans that are aimed at ethnically diverse colleagues Uh, so in the g15 for example you know there's a specific program that those things are important because we know we have to make change and we have to force that change the ultimate goal though is that actually those colleagues will just get on anyway because actually they have genuinely got a fair opportunity we've helped them to be ready they apply for the job they get the job and that actually we've removed the barriers that may have been there in the past yeah and there's a big bit there about unconscious bias where you know we all know that we've had moments in our lives where we've been in situations where we felt less uncomfortable 
than we would if we were in that situation with someone that looked a bit more like us or spoke a bit more like us or whatever it may be. All of us need to constantly challenge ourselves. I think anyone that says, I'm not biased, is not telling the truth. We all have biases. We just need to be aware of them and challenge them. Mm. And that's how we change it. It's a journey and it will take time. I think we are a decent way down that journey, but we're not there yet. We still have a gender pay gap. We still have an ethnicity pay gap. We have to address that. Mm-hmm. And structurally, that's going to require quite a lot of work downstream within education, the skills gap that's growing, and other things that I guess don't sit totally within your gift. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's, you know, you've got to find those moments when you can make a difference. So this year, we've doubled the number of apprentices that we're bringing into the organization, kind of trying to bring in that young new talent, those people with fresh ideas, different perspectives. You don't need to be a property professional. We can help you and train you up on that side of it. And that will help us. That will help us to get better representation. We then need to retain the diversity that we have in the organization in the first place and make sure that we're nurturing and fostering it. And that's about, you know, career journeys and pathways and just being a great place to work, you know, that Mm. you want to come to work, you want to do a great job and you want to help your customers. So, I mean, let's shift on a little bit, Andy, to talk about the recent Court of Appeal judgment that you had a couple of weeks ago against a contractor who had fitted unsafe cladding on four or five of your buildings. And this has been something that many, many people in all parts of the housing and construction world have been following, a very significant judgment from the Court of Appeal that really sets a new precedent, a new landmark in how future such cases may be treated by the courts. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and why it's so significant? Yeah, we think it's huge. We think it's absolutely massive and we think it will become clearer over time in the coming weeks how important this is for the UK, not just for Hyde customers, but for families across the UK who are living in buildings that are unsafe. So what it means is it's the first time that anybody has been found accountable or liable for work that they've done on buildings that are unsafe. So in this case, a contractor who installed cladding onto five towers that we own and installed that cladding incorrectly and unsafely. And what the verdict says is that that contractor is now being held accountable and it's a great outcome. So the contractor was a company called Malali, an Essex-based business, and they basically said that it wasn't their fault and that ultimately building regs had changed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And can we disagreed and it turns out that the court disagreed. So what the court has said is that actually it's very clear that the cladding that was installed, so the material itself, was unsafe, that the installation system that was used was not appropriate for that type of building, that the workmanship with, you know, things like fire breaks and things yeah. were not done to an acceptable standard and were in breach of contract. And the way that we reacted by removing that cladding immediately when we became aware. So in the wake of Grenfell, we surveyed our buildings and took action as required. And the judge has said that we were absolutely right to remove that cladding, to install a waking watch, so people patrolling the building to keep it safe whilst we remediated, and to cover the cost of that work, £8 million worth of work, ourselves. And you didn't get that back because the government's support scheme wasn't introduced until later and you'd done it too early. We'd done it too early. So we spent the £8 million to remediate without the benefit of the government's building safety scheme that's now there. 
We haven't built any customers for it. We've covered the cost of it ourselves. It was the right thing to do to keep our customers safe. What we want is the contractor to be held accountable, which is what the court has now delivered for us, because we are, frankly, out of patience and we are fed up of companies who haven't done the job that they've been employed to do properly not being held accountable. And there'll be many people listening to this, Andy Hume, that will ask, well, why hasn't this happened earlier? Why haven't we seen any other cases that have laid responsibility at the feet of a single business? These things take time. So because we were quick to remediate the building and actually other buildings that we own and quick to take action to make them safe for our customers, it meant that we'd understood our position quickly and that meant we could start court proceedings and conversations with contractors quickly. Our goal is not to sue contractors. We work very well with the vast majority of our contractors who've helped us to provide great buildings to you know hundreds of thousands of customers. Our goal is to hold people accountable when their standards fall below acceptable standards and it has a direct impact on our customers Mm. this court case does that for people living in unsafe buildings across the uk it gives them another avenue it inches them closer to getting a resolution on that and that's important for us it's something that we were determined to follow through to the end you know to not settle to not back down and what i think ultimately is it will become a precedent Mm. because this argument that's come back from contractors and developers that says well we complied at the time with building regs regs have changed so sorry about the fact that the building was unsafe you've had to spend millions on remediating the cladding but it's the rules governor and i think that was a central theme in this case and that must have huge ramifications for many almost millions of people that are affected by this scandal Yeah, I think so. And it's the sort of rhetoric, the sort of response that I'd have from my 11-year-old. You know, it's not fair. It's not my fault. I didn't know. That's not okay. These are professional firms, large firms. We have building safety standards for a reason. We have specifications and building control and sign-off for a reason. And it's clear, as we've seen in the judgment, that it was the wrong type of cladding, that it was the wrong installation system, that the workmanship wasn't good enough, had parts of fire breaks and controls missing and ultimately it was dangerous for the people living in that building Mm. and they must be held accountable for that do you think there needs to be a better moderation of risk and this is something we talked about with the boss of network homes another large housing association last year and essentially we were saying that on that a lot of money does get spent on things like waking watches and a lot of money is getting spent on all sorts of prevention tools that are just a little bit over the top and ultimately leaseholders being burdened with this cost that's in some cases excessive and unnecessary yeah i think there's an argument for that i think that's right i think the reality of it is we've moved the dial of what building safety looks like for families across the uk everybody has a right to live in a safe home we need to work out what that actually means in practice what i think we'll find with the introduction of the building safety act with the fire safety bill, we will hopefully see a move to a more proportional approach. And actually what that will do is it will help us to more quickly target buildings that are yet to be remediated by more quickly moving through the work that needs to be done. Because we can be proportional, we can be balanced, and we've got greater certainty on what good looks like. Mm. And it was a bit of a risk both for Hyde and for you as an executive team pursuing this, wasn't it? Because... There wasn't any guarantee you were going to win. There wasn't any guarantee you'd even get your money back or your costs if you do win. 
but it was something you went ahead with anyway. What was the driver? What are some difficult conversations you needed to have with stakeholders and other parties in getting permission to do that? No, not difficult. Look, I should probably point out we don't sue most of our contractors. So, <laughs> you know, we have great relationships with most of our contractors. The difference here was the relationship wasn't working. The contractor wasn't able to engage in a way that we felt comfortable with, that we were really keen to make sure that we could take a stand for our customers and also for families across the UK. And actually, as a board, we got ourselves to a place you know, relatively quickly as we went through this final high court process that said, actually, we're talking about principle here. It's not about compensation. It's not about the money. The money is spent. We've made the building safe. It's about, can we do something here that sets the principle that actually allocates accountability and that will give people greater clarity and greater hope and greater protections going forwards. Mm. So what would your message be to other housing associations, other house builders, other developers, other leaseholders, anybody that's affected by this, what would your advice be to them? Ultimately, we all need to work together. You know, this isn't about pointing the finger or taking people to court. This is about saying, if we identify that a building is unsafe, we need to work together to quickly fix that because it starts and ends with building safety. And it's that simple. Mm. And we need our customers to work with us. You know, everybody needs to work together. So if something is identified as unsafe, We have to get to the root cause of it, work out what the remediation and rectification plan is and take action. Mm. And at a customer level, that means we need to be allowed to give access, to disrupt you slightly in your life whilst we fix those buildings. And that isn't great. You know, we've seen on the news, haven't we, people living in buildings that are scaffolded and they've got netting over the windows and it's really not great. It's not pleasant or enjoyable for everybody. But building safety has to be paramount in all of that. Mm. And we have to work together to deliver that in a way that is best for everybody and of course one of the other challenges we've got now is around well it's a challenge we've always had really we've just never been facing up to it the way we are now around insulation and energy costs soaring has put this on the agenda is there a risk with some of the building regs that have been introduced over the years that have prioritized quite rightly elements of sustainability that we're over insulating buildings and that actually the need for buildings to be able to cool is prohibited a little bit by some of the cladding that's prescribed and has been fitted. Yeah, particularly in a world where we all like big glazed spaces and you get the sort of the sun factor. It's really hard, isn't it? And then, you know, your solution may be air conditioning, but that's not great for the environment. So we're sort of, we're recalibrating what good looks like, I think. that The whole industry is moving towards modern methods of construction. So kind of houses in a box, off-site construction, those sorts of things. And actually, they're probably the future. You know, that is the way it's going. That means you can get more consistent quality. You don't get build defects. Some of the issues that we've talked about here wouldn't have happened probably had this somehow been installed in a factory if that was possible. You know, it'd be a more controlled environment. So that's all good, but we're on that journey. Mm. No one has quite worked out yet what good looks like, what sustainable looks like. Whenever you introduce new materials, it's a bit like grand designs. We've all seen grand designs with Kevin McLeod and they build these wonderful houses that tend to go wrong halfway through because no one's ever done it before. Mm. And it's that sort of analogy where we're all trying to work out how to best do it. And as we triangulate on that and bring that together, then actually that will be a great place to be. But in the meantime, we're all sort of finding our feet. We just need to make sure that we do that in a way that is considered and controlled and doesn't bring in unnecessary risks. Mm. And when you look across the wider housing association sector, and not just housing associations, but everyone, England's housing stock 
is old and largely unfit for purpose. And as we stare down the barrel of massive rises in fuel costs, heating costs over the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of problems, isn't there, for many people in society that are on the breadline and live in poorly insulated old homes. Absolutely huge. And I think, you know, we've launched a fuel poverty fund to try and help our customers who are struggling with their bills. We provide free debt counselling to people to try and help our customers when they're struggling with their finances. So uh, as a housing association, it's incumbent upon ourselves to try and support our customers as best we can and also to lobby the government to make sure that they're able to support customers Mm. through what is a, I don't know, a period of unbelievable and unprecedented economic, social, political change. And I think the challenge is we live in old houses, as you say, and actually... It's not just about the way that they are built and the materials they are built out of, but also the way that we live. You know, we live differently now. We live as as different families now and we have different needs from our homes. And it's all of that needs to sort of adapt and it will take time because the built environment evolves slowly. Mm. I mean, one thing it's impossible to predict is who's going to be housing minister by the time this podcast goes live in a few (laughs) days' time. So let's not name anybody, but what would your message be to whoever that minister is, what would be the two or three things that you would like to see, either from a Hyde perspective or a wider housing association sector perspective? What are the three things that are going to make the most difference to your customers? Yeah, look, I'd love the minister to advocate more for social housing and for what we do and to support us. I think that's number one. We are integral to UK housing. We at Hyde are a member of the G15. We house or provide one in every 10 homes in London. Yet sometimes it feels that we're on the fringe with things. And I think the government needs to recognise the value that we provide and make us integral to their decision-making because we can help them deliver the change that's needed. I think the second thing is we need more clarity and certainty of the direction of travel from the government because the sort of flip-flopping and the knee-jerking reactions that we see at the minute make it incredibly difficult. You know, one of our jobs is to manage the assets, that the homes that we are guardians of, and we do that on a 50-year investment plan. We cannot do that. If the policies, the procedures, the appetite changes constantly, it costs money, it wastes time, it inconveniences our customers, it brings inefficiencies. So we need more direction, more certainty. And then the final thing is we just need better execution. If we want to increase the number of homes that we provide in the UK, and we all know about the housing crisis in the shortfalls, if we want to genuinely tackle that, like an oil tanker, we need to build momentum. We need to set ourselves on the right path. And we need to just keep going. And that direction is what we need if we're to deliver that. Because if we don't get that clear direction and we are not confident in the certainty of that, it is difficult for us to invest. Mm. As an organisation, you're pretty mighty in terms of scale. I mean, you would easily be a FTSE 100 company if all of the assets that you own were commercialised in the same way that British land, land securities or Granger was. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we have over £10 billion worth of assets, the homes that we own. But I don't know what to do with that, because actually our core purpose is always going to be the same, which is to provide housing. We're never really going to sell them. We occasionally dispose of the odd one because it kind of makes things work and it's maybe in the wrong place or something. But fundamentally, our job is to provide as many homes as possible to as many customers as possible to help them with their life outcomes and their chances. And Mm. actually, doesn't everybody just need a safe, secure, warm home? that's free from damp, that's free from mould, that's somewhere that they can grow as an individual or grow as a family? Mm. Well, absolutely. And I mean, one question you're obviously being asked at dinner parties at the minute will be around 
interest rates, inflation, mortgages, where is everything going? What are some of your views on that as we stare into the second, well, we're into the second half of the year now, we're well into it. But obviously there is a lot of uncertainty now around rate rises, inflation, people are now expecting to come down in the final quarter of the year. But this is going to have, again, a more pronounced effect on people at the sharper end of the spectrum than people like us that that are probably a little bit insulated from it in our worlds. You're right. Look, inflation is an absolute disaster for many, many families. You know, the cost of living crisis, inflation, it is incredibly difficult. And I think, I actually think the priority of the government the immediate priority of the government needs to be to control inflation. We cannot let it run away with itself. We have got to rein it in to bring the cost of living down for our customers. And that has to be the priority. One of the ways of doing that is with interest rate rises. And that's unpopular. So what it means is I think people should expect to see more action to bring down inflation. And that will mean more interest rate rises. And that will mean in the short term, a higher cost of living for many, many families before things then settle back. We're going to have to calibrate for that and get ready for that. And that will be painful. People need to be thinking about their cost of living, what they're spending money on, where they can and can't afford to do things and making adjustments. And that's not fun. Nobody enjoys that. That's kind of rubbish, isn't it? That's not where you want to be. But that's the reality. And that's how we get through this. I can't believe it's where any government would ever want to be. But I think the reality of it is we're at the back of a pandemic. We've never been through this before. And we now have to have belief in a strong government that can bring it back for us. Mm. And what can you and some of the other bosses of the major housing associations be doing proactively to support government on some of these issues? What's your offer? What's your olive branch? What's in your palm? Look, I think I actually see it slightly differently for me. So it's what we can do to support our customers, which in turn will then help government. So, you know, for us, it's about being that empathetic here to know that if customers are in difficulty, they should always speak to us as quickly as possible so that we can help them, give them advice, give them support, give them rent relief, whatever it may be. Try and do the right thing to help people through those difficult times. We all fall on hard times at some point in our life and we need to be there for our customers. I think we can help to inform the government and educate the government of the challenges that our customers are facing, the unique challenges quite often that our customers are facing. And we have to help them in the shaping of policy. But they also need to come to the table. You know, so rent settlement conversations, housing benefit conversations, universal credit conversations. You know, we cannot continue to penalise some of the most vulnerable people in society. And we need to implore the government to take action to support those people. Mm. Well, some great sentiment to leave it on there. And hopefully whoever is in the uh, housing minister hot seat and, uh, and other hot seats such as well, such as the big chair, the prime minister will be decided over the next few weeks as well. So uh, he or she will hopefully uh, be able to take some time to listen to this and reflect on, on some of the wise words there from Andy Hume, boss uh, at Hyde Housing. Andy, thank you so much for coming along. Thanks for being a, a great sport and for giving us good range of colourful insight there. And, and we'll hope to have you back on at some point with some of the other G15 bosses to talk about some of the progress you guys are making as a sector. So Yeah, we'd love it. Thanks so much for having me. So thanks a lot for listening, everyone. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, search it online and you'll find it on your favourite podcast platform. Uh, you can subscribe and check in on some of the other episodes we've had in recent months with other housing association bosses and, and don't forget to get your tickets for the uh, resi 360 event on propertyweek.com over the next uh, couple of weeks thanks so much for listening i'm andrew teacher and we'll see you again soon bye-bye